How's everybody doing out there? Good? You hear this okay? Good. Hey, uh, before we get started, I just want to say this is a pretty important week for the surge. Uh, on the uh, 26th of June, which is a week from tomorrow, uh, we're going to find out finally, for sure, what's going to happen with our property. In fact, we expect to actually hear something even as this week uh, unfolds. And so if we get some word on the, the sale, uh, we will uh, put that in the uh, way for you to know. Uh, otherwise, we'll be uh, keeping you apprised of that on Sundays. But uh, I'm kind of hoping that even this week, God sort of gets word to us that this thing is going to happen. So if you've been praying for that, keep it up one more week. Don't despair. Don't, don't tire in well-doing. Um, Here's what, we, here's what we are. Uh, we are in the book of Romans. We have spent seven weeks going through, if you will, the most depressing part of the book. It's the part of the book where Paul has been teaching everybody about the mess that we are as mankind in as we face a holy God. It's been a, kind of a tough seven weeks, but, uh, you know, Paul realizes, I think God does too, that nobody really... Nobody really reaches out for salvation until they actually realize that they are in dire situation, uh, that their life is being threatened. You don't grab onto the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the rope if you're drowning unless you actually think you're drowning, right? You've got to be at a place where you get it, that uh, life depends on grabbing that rope. So chapter one, chapter two, really kind of dissected every person who's ever lived on the planet to show that they're guilty before God and headed for judgment because of sin. They're either uh, rejected what God has revealed about himself through uh, creation. Maybe they don't have the Bible, but they see what God has made, and they say, you know what, I'm not going to follow that God. I'm not going to worship that God. I'm going to invent my own God, invent my own religion, and off they go. Or maybe they've bad religion altogether, uh, but they still, because they're made in the image of God, they recognize that there's right and there's wrong. And we know that they do that because we see somebody else doing something we think is wrong. We, we call them on that. Well, all that does is prove to us that we get it, that there's right and wrong, and we sometimes choose to do wrong ourselves. Or maybe they're just super religious, like the Jewish folks were, and they believe that their religion and their working to keep all the rules of that religion is somehow, by their own efforts, going to make them, put them in good standing with God. Uh, again, even the Jew, God's chosen people, could not keep this law, even though they were the people that God had chosen to, uh, to sort of specially bless. So the bottom line is, by the time Paul finishes Romans chapter 1 and 2, and then summarizes it there in the first half of chapter 3, you see that everybody who's ever lived on the planet, everybody who's ever going to live on the planet, is going to have this problem with sin. And God's holiness and his justice demands that that sin get dealt with. It carries a death penalty. So last week, the very exciting summary of all that is Paul brings in God himself from quotes from the Old Testament to sort of testify just in case people hadn't quite got it yet about our condition before God. And it's grim. Mankind has been touched, all of mankind, our intellects, our wills, our emotions, even our bodies. Mankind is not just dim or a hard of hearing. Uh, he is dead and deaf and blind to who God is. And we are told that in ourselves, there is not one. No, not one that is righteous. You and I cannot show ourselves to be righteous before God through our good works. Some may be worse than others, some may be better than others, but no one measures up. But today, today I'm excited because after all of the hopelessness of the first seven messages, uh, God brings a ray of hope. God has made a way for human beings to be declared righteous before him. 
and it does not have anything to do with how we work our way to him, but how he chooses to reach down and save the unsalvageable, the hopeless, the use, and the me's. This passage we're going to look at today contains some of the most monumental words, concepts, ideas of all scripture. Redemption, grace, justification, and your favorite, propitiation, right? Uh, guarantee you. Uh, weird, but they're nothing to be afraid of. We're going to explain them as we go along, and in explaining them as we go along, and in you understanding them, you're going to have the basis, the basics for what this whole salvation thing hinges on. And the basics is why John Wooden, right? Arguably the best basketball coach, probably the best coach of anything, started every season teaching his team how to put on a sock and how to tie a shoe. The reason? You stand on your feet. Your feet are the foundation of everything that happens on a basketball court. Your feet have to be solid. And if John Wooden were alive, and if he were a Christian, if he were teaching today about what the Bible says about salvation, I believe he would start with the passage we're going to look at this morning. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into the deep end. God, thank you for your word. Thanks for getting us through the kind of the hard part of Romans. I mean, not that, not that there's not hard parts to come, but boy, having us face ourselves for who we are as we approach you is a little daunting because we so want to be good enough. Uh, pray that you would give us open minds and hearts. Give us ears to hear this morning what you have to say to us that we might be changed from our time with you. Okay, if you get your Bibles or apps, or you can read on the screen, Romans chapter 3, six verses, starting in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God, after all of the horrific news we've heard, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That word but's kind of important. When you see it in scripture, it always denotes, well, there's been some stuff going on, so we've been tracking, we've been following, there's been something that's happened, but all of a sudden a change in direction, a change in kind of motive, a change in whatever. And the whole change in this particular passage hangs on that phrase apart from the law. Because it's basically saying salvation is not going to come from anything related to the law. Salvation is not going to come from that. God's already demonstrated you and I cannot be saved, cannot be declared as righteous as God by the law because none of us can keep it. We all sin. But that is our instinct, is it not? Right? We get our degrees by working hard. We get our salaries by working hard. Men, we get our wives by working hard, right? To create the illusion that those women are going to be happier with us than anything else, right? We worked hard for everything we get. And because of that, so many people have a really tough time believing that, you know, I, can, I cannot do it myself. We tend to believe, well, I, I'm pretty good. I go to church. I, I'm not doing anything really bad. I try to do the right things. And what they're really saying is, I believe that by keeping the rules by keeping the law, by keeping some standard of right and wrong or morality, I'm going to be okay before God. And God says, sorry, you're missing a point. The standard is that you can never have ever done or said or thought or had a wrong motive ever. And you know what? All the people I've talked to in my years on this earth, I've never talked to anybody who actually believes they meet that standard. As a matter of fact, if you took all the religions of the world and laid them on the table, they fall into two camps, just like there's two camps of people who get up in the morning, right? <laughs> right? One, there's going to be a bunch of religions, frankly, every one of them but one, 
where man is going to somehow save himself. And there's going to be the other religion, Christianity, where man cannot save himself, and he's going to be saved by the activity of a gracious God. So that's this first thing that the text says, that the righteousness of God bestowed on any human comes not through the keeping of some law, but apart from the law. Your salvation is apart from keeping the law, apart from you doing something. In fact, you will do nothing to contribute to your salvation. Now, we see in this text also that that the goal, the object, the standard for salvation is the righteousness of God. That's the standard. You don't have to be as good as Billy Graham. You don't have to be as good as Mother Teresa. You don't have to be as good as anybody else. You have to have the righteousness of God. You've got to be as good as God. There must be a pronouncement by God that he is well pleased with you, that there's not a spot or blemish on you. Your record is completely clean. You must be declared to be sinless, to possess the perfect moral character of God in all that he does and says and all that he responds to. And that's God's requirement for entry into heaven. God's not going to wink at anything less and he's not going to compromise. So apart from the law, our being good enough, the righteousness of God, it says, has been manifested or it's been revealed. We may not leave her today knowing the secret of happiness, but we will know the secret of salvation because it's no longer a mystery. In other words, God is pulling the covers back so we can see it now clearly. What maybe the Old Testament gave us just a sort of a dim picture of. God is going to reveal what he's done for us through Jesus Christ. God says, look, you cannot make it to me, but I will provide my eternal son to become a man. He's going to be born of a virgin, so he will bypass the sin nature that every other human being since Adam has been cursed by. He's going to unite himself with humanity. He's going to live perfectly under the law as a human. He's going to die on a cross. I'm going to punish him for what you did. He will rise from the dead to show that I have been okay with that payment, that I will take his righteousness and I will clothe you with it. Then I will draw you to me to believe that all you need is Christ. You will stand before me in the righteousness of that person, Jesus Christ. I will forgive your sin because of his death on the cross. I will then begin to cleanse you from everything that's still rotten in you because you are already clothed in the righteousness that comes from heaven. All the demands that you have to meet to be in my presence, I'm going to give to you as a present. And through all that process, what do you and I do? Nothing. We simply were brought by God to the acceptance of what God has done in Christ. Now that's salvation. Now that's such a wonderful story, wonderful news, that for most people, they don't believe it. In fact, a lot of people just get downright angry at the insinuation that they've got no part in their salvation, that they can't be good enough. But verse 21 goes on. For none, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law in the list phrase, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What does that mean? Well, the law can't give you righteousness. Can't save you because you can't keep it, right? But the law and the prophets, that's simply Jewish terminology for the Old Testament. That's how they refer to the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. It says it provides evidence. It gives testimony of this whole thing about God saving us through this Messiah that he's going to provide. And we see, we see examples of that all the way through Scripture. Just give you one. The specific laws that God laid down involves a high priest once a year who would offer a blood sacrifice for the sins of the nation 
to cover the sins of the nation temporarily. It was a picture of what the Messiah would eventually do on a permanent basis. The Old Testament testifies that it's faith in what God says that Messiah will do, not keeping the law that saves a person. See, God's perspective for Old Testament law is that people might actually, because of the law and their violations of it, see their sins and be brought to their knees to actually expect, anticipate, hope for, long for this Messiah who's going to come and offer them mercy through, through this Messiah, another word for Christ. So Christianity, you see, is not some sect that just breaks away from Judaism. It is actually the fulfillment of what faithful, believing Jews long for. If David were here today, if Abraham were here today, if Moses were here today, if Elijah was here today, if Isaiah was here today, they would be Christians because that was their hope, that the mercy of God would be seen, revealed through this Messiah that God had promised. They would have recognized Jesus as the testimony that the Old Testament talked about. This brings us to verse 22. Well, what did the Old Testament bear witness to? And here it is. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There it is. Faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God accomplished it and revealed it to us in his son. We obtain it by faith. This is the first time since chapter one that Paul has used this term faith. Faith shows up when you uh, have a child in college and the child calls home from college and says, I need some money. I need some money right now. I am broke. I am hungry. I'm going to starve to death if I don't get some money. So you go to your bank. And you take, talk to the teller. Said, put some money from my account in my child's account. So the teller says, okay, I'm going to subtract some money from your account. I'm going to then deposit it into that kid's account. And though that kid be delinquent, <laughs> maybe inept, though she has no earning power or he has no earning power, he or she can now write checks on that money as if they were a normal working American who had earned it themselves. See, your moving your money over was a work that you did. And the kid simply believed that you did it. And then he or she wrote checks on that with no problem. That's what faith is. That's how you and I obtain salvation. You trust completely in what someone else did. You trust them because that person is so proven in character, so efficient, so true to their word, and you know, without that trust, you are going to starve to death because you've got nothing to contribute to your own bank account. The word that kind of comprises this kind of concept in the New Testament is the word receive. To as many as received Christ, to them he gave the right to become sons of God. Colossians, as therefore you have received Christ, walk in him. Paul asked the Corinthians, what do you have as Christians that you have not received? See, our salvation is a received salvation, not an earned salvation. Another example, sun comes up, clouds form, rain comes down. And the plants that can do nothing in and of themselves receive the light, receive the rain. They accept it and they live. That's how we are saved, by receiving. Faith means that you hear the message of Christ, that you understand that he died for you, that you agree that that's a true truth and you understand. You have faith. You rest in it. You abide in it. It's an act of trusting in what he has and has done that you don't have and can't do. And the recognition that you need that forgiveness. Faith comes a little bit with a sense of re repentance to it too, right? 
you want to be what Jesus has proclaimed you to be, righteous as God. You want to shuck this sin stuff that you're battling, right? And we're going to see in a few chapters, Paul's going to actually deal with what happens in a Christian's life as they are made new creations. So, salvation. The bestowing on us of the righteousness of God through our faith in Christ. Verse 23. Who is this salvation for? I mean, who's it available to? Just the Jews? No. For all those who believe. Anybody can come who believes. For there is no distinction because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no other way. Everybody falls short. There's only one way to get there. Uh, Let me make a point here. In the Greek, the word sinned is uh, in a verb tense that means that the sin is something that has already occurred at some point in the past. In other words, it's already happened. All of us have sinned. Everybody has already sinned. It's not as if you will sin in the future, although that's true. Paul says, sin in you and me is a done deal. You cannot stop at this point and go, man, I just now realize that God is holy. I just realize that I've got, I've got a problem. So I'm going to do everything I can to straighten my life up. I'm going to behave myself from now on. I'm going to try really hard to not sin anymore. As Carol King said, it's, it's too, too late, baby. Now it's too late. You've already sinned. Let me give you an illustration of this. Jackie, a few weeks ago, uh, decided to take a paint can in our house and to move it to a shelf on one of the cabinets out in the garage. So she uh, opens the cabinet door, she gets a little two-step ladder, she reaches down, grabs the paint can, steps up on the ladder, and cracks her head on the corner of that cabinet door that was open. Blood everywhere. Your head bleeds, you know that? Pretty good. When it gets, when it gets, when it gets whacked. All the blood got all over this really nice pink shirt that she kind of liked, that she was wearing and loved. She did everything she could do to get that blood out. There's no use. Shirt is ruined. Now let me ask this. What if she felt really bad about all the blood she got on that shirt? What if she committed never again to hit her head in such a way that she would get more blood on that shirt? What if she's really, really sorry for having done it the first time? Does that shirt ever get cleaned? Now, it's ruined forever. No matter how careful she is from here on, it's still going to be ruined. It's a done deal. It's already happened. This is sin for us. No way to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps to meet God's standard of perfection. We've already sinned. End of story. There's no way we can be good enough from this point on to get rid of the stain from the sin we've already committed. And just in case we miss the point, Paul goes on. We've sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. See, see if, you, if you tried to leap over the Grand Canyon, you're going to fall short. Now, let's just say you happen to be an Olympian who does the broad jump. You might, you might jump 15 feet further than the guy next to you but you are still going to fall short because that sucker is a mile wide. Now that phrase, fall short of the glory of God, that is in the present tense, which means right now. You've already sinned and right now you fall short. In case you thought, you know, I could resolve that past sin and live perfectly from now forward, you are wrong. All have sinned and it's a done deal and fall short right now. Because you've always sinned, you always fall short right now. Five seconds go by. Anything change? No, because it's right now. And right now, you fall short. 
Anytime it's, anytime it's now, you fall short because you've already sinned. And that term, fall short, is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as inferior. In other words, we are not, whenever it is right now, right now, right now, what God requires for humans to be in his presence. You and I have sinned, and each moment it is right now, we are inferior to what pleases God or what gains his approval. God does not look at any of our lives and conclude, ah, they're good enough. So if we are going to be saved, it's got to come from something other than us. What is it? Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Another word, justified. Let me explain what that means. Justified is a judicial or legal term. It means there's somebody in a position of authority, perhaps a judge, someone who knows all the facts of a particular case, someone who knows what the law is and what the law requires, and this someone declares that the person standing in front of them is completely innocent or not guilty. It's not a pardon. Not a pardon. That's another facet of salvation, but this is talking about justification, justified. Justified means totally not guilty. This person in front of me has never done anything wrong. That that he has operated in perfect accord with all the law forever. This person walks out completely free. And the verb indicates that this justifying thing is an ongoing constant process. Let Let me try to explain. You ever heard the statement, your name is mud? Anybody heard that? Your name is mud? There was a guy in my high school, I thought it was named after him. His name was Dwayne Mudd. Only person I know that spelt their name like I do. And he was a bully, Dwayne Mudd. But he, it's not about him. That just, I just want to get a slam on Dwayne Mudd, the bully. Uh, your name is Mudd concept comes from a fellow by the name of Dr. Samuel Mudd, M-U-D-D, two Ds. One night, Dr. Samuel Mudd is at his house and a guy shows up with a broken leg. So Dr. Mudd sets his leg and sends the guy on his way. The person he treated was John Wilkes Booth, who had broken his leg, jumping from the balcony of Ford's Theater, having shot President Abraham Lincoln. In the subsequent investigation, Dr. Mudd was arrested and charged with aiding and abetting a criminal. In his defense, he claimed, look, the Hippocratic Oath demands I take care of injured human beings, and that at the time I knew nothing about this assassination attempt. But he was found guilty and received a life sentence. He avoided the death penalty by one vote. A few years later, in 1869, President Andrew Johnson pardoned Dr. Mudd, and he was released from jail. But see, a pardon indicates guilt. You are guilty, but we're going to forgive you for what you did. So here's a pardon. It's a get-out-of-jail card. You did it, We're going to forgive you and not punish you anymore for it. Well, this did not set well with Dr. Mudd's family. And they continued to push for a justification of Dr. Mudd. They wanted his sentence commuted. They wanted him to be declared innocent of any wrongdoing. They wanted him justified. Efforts continued all the way up through Presidents Carter and Reagan. Their final effort failed in 2003 when the Supreme Court refused to hear the matter, saying that the deadline for filing the motion was over. Dr. Mudd was never justified, never declared innocent. He was only pardoned, offered forgiveness for what he had done. 
See, there's a big, huge difference between being declared totally innocent and being pardoned. Say you incur a debt at a store. And then you, you know, have some financial troubles. You lose your job and you, and you can't pay. I mean, you, you still have to feed the dog, so you've got to use some of your money for that, right? But if a store decides they're going to cancel your debt, that is a pardon. That's debt forgiveness. You're no longer liable for the debt, but you've got a little bit of discomfort because you knew that you owed it, you did owe it, and the store knows that you owe it, and they may have a lot of difficulty giving you anything else on credit in the future. And if they decide they want to press you for payment legally, they're looking for justice. But let's just say a friend shows up. They go to the store and they pay all of your bill for you in full. If the, if the, court, if the store still decides they want to take you to trial, you're going to be justified. You're going to be declared totally not guilty because the debt has already been fully paid. The court's going to justify you, declare you innocent, and your case would be dismissed. You would walk out free, not pardoned, free, totally innocent. This is why when you guys get into uh, arguments with your wives, you don't utter these words, do you? Well, honey, I forgive you. <laughs> How's that work for you? <laughs> because, see, that statement implies that she was guilty. If you're wise, you say this, babe, you are perfect. <laughs> you have done nothing wrong. You're everything a wife should be and could be. You're everything I dream of. I'm the one who's no good. You are justified. You're completely innocent. You do that and you'll live long. And I guarantee you about 100% of the time, if you say that, you'll, be, you'll also be speaking the truth. One, one fellow put it like this, to be justified means it's just as if I'd never sinned. For any of us to be in heaven, we must be justified. God has to look at us and say, he is totally innocent. He is perfect. And if you're a thinking human being and you're still alert, you're going, wait, 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 wait a minute, Dwayne. I thought you just said we all have sinned and are continually inferior to what God approves. This is why we are justified by his grace as a gift. That's another word, grace. It means uh, unmerited favor. It means getting something really, really good that we don't deserve. See, we deserve eternal punishment, but we don't get that. That's mercy, not getting the bad stuff we deserve. Right? Not getting what's coming to us. Instead, we receive justification, being declared totally innocent of sin, even though we know we're sinners. If we get something great we didn't deserve, that's grace. God's grace is motivated to us by his love. I don't have to, he says. I got no need to. There's no reason I would have to. I'm not obligated to do such a thing, but I will choose to. I'm just going to love that person because I want to. Not a cooperative venture, you see that? It's God saying, I, I will do this. I will bestow my grace on him freely as a gift, totally undeserved for those who by faith believe in Jesus Christ. The word gift uh, is interesting to me. The same word for gift that's used here is used in the book of John, but it's translated differently. It's translated without cause or without reason. Jesus said, they hated me without reason. They hated me without cause. They hated me as a gift. There's no reason to hate Jesus. He had done nothing to deserve being hated. Right? Didn't deserve to be hated. Same concept here. We are declared innocent of sin as a gift. God offers to save us for no good reason. There's no reason that we gave him. We don't deserve it. See, what is a gift? When somebody purchases something and gives it to you, 
just because they want to, it's a gift, right? You didn't deserve it. See, if you did deserve it, like you worked for it, then it's not a gift. It's a wage. Or if you did something nice for them and they're paying you back in a nice way, it's not a gift. They're paying you back for something that you did. No, no, a gift comes to you freely because of the heart of the giver. We are declared righteous by God simply because of his love for us and it is a total gift. We earned it not one bit. We gave him, we gave him no good reason to do it. It's free to you and me because somebody else paid for it, but a gift costs the giver something, right? It's a free gift for you and me. We receive it no cost to us, but it's not free. See, there's someone in heaven, eternal in his deity, who took on a human form, human name, human body, human wounds, and spoke, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He paid a price. It wasn't free. Free to you and me, but not free for him. Sin had to be punished so that righteousness could be provided through no good work of our own, justified without a cause, a gift to us because of God's grace. Well, we kind of suspect we know who this is, but verse 24 tells us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Another big word, redemption. Got justification, got grace, got gift, got righteousness, got redemption. You're going to be masters in theology before we finish with Romans. Redemption is a word from the slave market. It means to buy a slave, to pay the price for a slave, and then to set them completely free. Somebody has to pay the price for our sin. We are justified, declared innocent, freely as a gift. God didn't have to, didn't need to. He wanted to. How did he do it? Through the redemption, the purchase of us and the freeing of us that was in Christ Jesus. Purchase price was paid by Christ. Well, that's interesting, Dwayne, but what was the currency he used? Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Okay, now the big word, propitiation. It is a religious term from the temple. Propitiation means this, to appease or satisfy, appeasement or satisfaction. In other words, Jesus' death paid for sin, and it did so because it satisfied or appeased God's demand that sin be punished. His death was sinward to pay for our sin. That's redemption. But his death was also Godward to satisfy God's wrath because of sin. That's propitiation. Christ's death assuages the wrath of God. God is, in a sense, a very hostile, violent deity when it comes to sin and evil. It must be punished. A little more explanation on propitiation. The word propitiation is translated elsewhere in the Bible as mercy seat. You may not remember all of the details about the Old Testament temple and tabernacle and holy of holies and ark and all that kind of stuff, but the, here's what it is. When a Jew, once a year, would have send the high priest in to, to sort of uh, appease God for all the sins of the nation, here's what would happen. The high priest would take an unblemished, unspotless, perfect animal, would would basically proclaim all the nation's sin on that critter, and then he would kill it. He would drain the blood, and he would take the blood into the Holy of Holies. The presence of God, it says, hovered over the Ark of the Covenant, in which was, you remember, the two tablets containing the Ten Commandments, the laws. 
So God would look down and what he would see would be all the laws of Israel and all of the sins they committed against those laws. So God's holiness would look down on this violated law. But between God and the law, on the very top of the ark, was a gold plate called the mercy seat. And it's on the mercy seat that God said, I will meet with you. I'm holy, your sins are not. We cannot meet, but we'll meet on this holy mercy seat. Okay, so here's how you meet with man. The high priest would take the blood of that lamb and he would basically cover that mercy seat with blood. It would basically, the blood would cover the violations of the law. And God would look down and now he would see not the violations of the law, he would see the blood that would appease him in anticipation of what the Messiah would be doing permanently when he showed up. And he would then withdraw his anger and not crush the nation of Israel for their sins. It appeased him. That's what it says that Christ did. So another translation of this verse actually says, whom God publicly displayed as a mercy seat. Jews don't understand that. We sometimes don't. It's Jesus' blood that is what satisfies God's holy demand that sin be punished. We, you and I, have zero part in this. This is between God the Son and God the Father. Jesus alone appeases God's wrath because of your sin and mine. You'll notice there is no good works that man does on that mercy seat. It's just Jesus and his blood. Jesus and his blood. God looks down and is satisfied, he says, that the punishment for sin for people who believe by faith in Jesus Christ has been made by Jesus on the cross. And it says that God put him on display as the demonstration of his wrath. God had a purpose for all this. Verse 25. This whole thing was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Okay, what's all this mean? The word show means demonstration. Christ was a demonstration. Everybody been to, anybody been to a demonstration, a sit-in, right? So do you have a point to make? Even if it's about something as stupid as Fast and Furious movies, don't make any more, please, right? You have a sit-in or something, right? The Greek word here for show or demonstrate means index. You use your index finger to point out things. It's a thing you point out. And this thing says that Jesus was being pointed out by God as a public demonstration to point out God's righteousness. God had to make the point somehow that he's not a compromising deity. Why did he have to do that? We'll get to that in a second. In the 1988 presidential campaign, Bush ran an ad against Michael Dukakis showing a prison with a turnstile and prisoners just going out and getting free. He was making the point that he was demonstrating that Dukakis would not be a just president because he was going to let prisoners get away with crimes. I've got that 30-second ad up here for you, I think. Take a look. As Governor Michael Dukakis vetoed mandatory sentences for drug dealers, he vetoed the death penalty. His revolving door prison policy gave weekend furloughs to first-degree murderers not eligible for parole. While out, many committed other crimes like kidnapping and rape and many are still at large. Now Michael Dukakis says he wants to do for America what he's done for Massachusetts. America can't afford that risk. Ooh, pretty powerful ad, actually, in that presidential campaign. If you want to know why it was so effective, just search Google Dukakis and Willie Horton. Willie Horton, and you'll see why. Let's bring this back to God for a second. If God were going to do that, just let people walk, just declare sinners justified, all creation would join forces in saying, wait a minute, 
something is wrong here. So how can God let a Dwayne Dara preach, knowing what he knows about Dwayne Dara? How can God let anybody in the band come and sing praises and go to heaven, knowing what he knows about each one of the people who play in the band? How is it right? How is God righteous for letting any of us go to heaven, knowing what he knows about us? Our sins, our crimes. Could anyone point a finger at God and say, God, you're not being just? And the answer is no. And the reason that the punishment for each and every one of our sins as followers of Christ has been inflicted on Christ. The finger points to Christ. God took it out on Christ. And as a result, nobody can say that God is a compromising God, that he's allowed people in who haven't had their sins dealt with. See, up to the time of Christ, people sinned all over the place. There were believers who waited for this Messiah who were sinning all over the place. And God had not incinerated them back in the Old Testament for their sins. God let them go on sinning. In most cases, it didn't appear he was doing anything about it. People lived as sinners, you know, seemingly wonderful lives, even if they lives, even though they were waiting for the Messiah. Well, that sure makes God look like a compromising deity. But is he? No, 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 no. Because all along, all along, we're told, God had fixed a date when he was going to deal with sin. He was exercising, it says, forbearance. It's a fancy Nancy word, simply meaning enduring patiently the sins of mankind. See, he already established a date when he's going to take care of all the sin for all believers for all time. You can't just look at the Old Testament and conclude that God was compromising, that God was allowing sin to go on that was undealt with, because Jesus Christ is the index. He's the demonstration. He's the one that you point to, God points to, to say, look, all those sins, all the people going to go to heaven, I dealt with on the cross. And Jesus declares for all to see that God did punish all sin for those of uh, believers. Okay, God, you, you might ask, okay, I get that for the Old Testament. But, but Christ has come and died. And there have been people like Dwayne Dare who's gotten saved since. So he's still saved now, but he's still sinning. How is it right that he could still go to heaven? Because he's sinning in the aftermath. It says this, it was to show his righteousness also at the present time. So that he might be the just and the justifier of, this, of the one who has faith in Christ. So, how can you let Dwayne Darrow preach? How can you let Dwayne Darrow go to heaven? Even though he continues as a Christian to violate your law, how can God allow you and me, sinners, since the time of Christ, still go to heaven? How could he be the justifier of sinners in the present tense, since Christ died way back then? Answer still, Jesus on the cross. See, the punishment for every sin that would ever be committed by every person who is going to be a believer was paid for by Christ fully on the cross way back then. Sins past, present, and future for all those who, who did believe, waiting for the Messiah to come, and who have believed since Messiah has shown up. And God remains a just God. See, when Satan comes to accuse you and me as believers in the presence of God, now if you've read your Bibles, you know that he does that, right? You're aware of that, right? He comes before God and he accuses us before God. Jesus is the constant demonstration, the constant thing that's being pointed to by God. Oh, okay, thanks for that, thanks for that accusation. Covered, covered by Christ, covered by Christ. You want to, oh, you want to accuse tomorrow? Covered by Christ, covered by Christ. Oh, that was covered by Christ too. Oh, that's the way it goes. He's punished sin for all time for all those who by faith have Jesus Christ. See, the problem that scripture has has never been that sinners are going to go to hell. That's never been the big issue in Scripture. The big debate has always been 
the argument that God's going to let sinners into heaven. I'm a sinner, yet I'm going to heaven. How can this be? Looks unfair. Looks not right. Looks not just. Oh, but there's the cross. There's the cross. And the man who hung on the cross. Punishment completely paid for those who believe by faith in Jesus. Makes God just. But you did notice, right, in that text, that God only declares sinners innocent, justified, redeemed, headed to heaven, who have put their faith in Christ. See, there is no other way, no other name under heaven, it says, by which a person might be saved. As four is the only answer for two plus two. So faith in Christ is the only way for mankind, you and me, to be saved. And because of Romans 1, 2, and 3, you now understand why it is you cannot save yourself and how God through Christ has made that possible. If you are today and you are not a Christian, why not mark 18 June 2017 as the day you transfer based on what God has done from death to life? Let's pray. God, it's uh, amazing to me that you deign to step into our world and explain yourself. We had all kinds of questions as to how it would be possible we could go to heaven. You've answered, you started answering them. You deigned to dip into the world, share your thoughts, share your logic behind how it's okay for us sinners to be declared in front of you as righteous as you are. We don't feel that way. We don't live that way. But you see us that way. And it's not because of anything we've done. All we've done is sin and fall short. We sin, we have fall short, we are inferior. Yet, you have made us righteous because of faith. Not something we've done, something we've simply received, a gift. It's amazing that you would deign to love us because we gave you no reason. Not one shred of evidence goes on our side of the ledger that would make you owe us anything but judgment. And yet here we are. People who have expressed faith in Jesus Christ headed to a place that we didn't earn, that we don't deserve. It's by grace. It really is amazing grace that you would love us as we take communion. We're going to take a little piece of bread that represents Christ's body, a little bit of juice that represents his blood, and maybe we have a little bit more appreciation for what that blood and body did for us. And a little recognition that we did nothing to earn it. It was simply you and you alone that made it happen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.